And here we go. What's going on, everyone? This is the Dapper Villains Podcast. I am Dana Bluen, and I'm here with, as always, my partner, my co-host, my main man, Jay Such Dave. Hey, how you doing? And we've got a pretty awesome episode lined up for you today. We've got a great guest, Nathaniel Natty Adams. He is the author of the book, I Am Dandy, The Return of the Elegant Gentleman. And so he's got a great background. We're going to dive into it. Natty, thank you for being here with us. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Now, before we get right into it, uh, Jay, let me know beforehand that your wife has been uh, has tested positive for COVID nineteen. She's actually a healthcare worker, so she was, you know, working, got exposed. So we're we're very sorry to hear that. Hopeful, hope for okay. a speedy recovery for her. Yeah, she's uh, she's a nurse here in New Orleans, and she got it very early on, which is actually kind of lucky before everything got overwhelmed. Um, she's doing fine. She's a very mild case. She's on day nine of her recovery and she's feeling much better. She had very mild symptoms the whole time. So uh, we've, we've actually been very, very lucky and I'm very proud of her for all the work she does. Yeah. And we're, we're grateful for her and all the other healthcare workers out there on the front lines, both here in Thailand, there in the United States and around the world, you know, really taking a risk to help the rest of us. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's get into the, uh, the interview though, a little bit more uh, upbeat subject of, mm-hmm dandy and before we get started i'd like to ask you to for the listeners for us in general can you define dandy yeah um so it's a it's a hard thing to kind of define um but so like you mentioned earlier i've done i've actually done two books with the photographer rose callahan about this the first one's i am dandy which is uh which we did in 2013 which is about um mainly focused on people in new york paris london um, and then the second book is We Are Dandy, where we went a little bit further uh, to South Africa, Japan, and more of Europe. Mm. So uh, we spent a lot of time interviewing men all over the world. And when we first set out to do it, we sort of thought, okay, well, how do we define a dandy? And then we kind of realized as we went along, because a lot of the guys we were interviewing were all different in how they dressed, in the things they did, in their age, in their race, all kinds of things. So what was the thing they had in common? And what we came up with is that Dandy is a man who is obsessed with elegance and who can't live any other way um, and, and also has to be somewhat eccentric. And then I'll also say I have two kind of two definitions of Dandy. I have a lowercase Dandy, and that just means a well-dressed man, right? So a guy who likes to dress up is a, is a lowercase D Dandy, capital D Dandy is like a real genuine eccentric, like Massimiliano, who's the guy who's on the cover of that first book. Um, people who are really living a complete aesthetic lifestyle. Hmm. Now, I, I think about this, and I'll, I'll ask you, I'll ask you about it. Is it possible? Like, could I be maybe a lowercase dandy, but then have maybe 15 percent uppercase in me? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, I think that's that's probably right. I also think that um, dandyism, dandy is a very specific thing. Being a dandy and being a capital D dandy is pretty rare. But I think um, dandyism is something that anyone can kind of access and learn from and take from. You don't have to be a capital D dandy to appreciate elements of dandyism and to even learn lessons from it and and incorporate it into your own lifestyle. Um, I, I don't. Most people don't have the 
time and the energy of the patients that it takes to be a capital D dandy. It's like a whole a full-time job. Now, when I was doing the, the research for this interview, Jay sent me a bunch of background and I was going through and I was just amazed. And I, I, I want to get into your background and, and like, especially like uh, how you've sort of incorporated, you somehow incorporated dandyism into your education, your formal education. Yeah, right. yeah. I want to get into that. But one of the things I was watching, I believe, was your TED Talk in Jersey City. Mm-hmm. And you said you started asking men if they thought everyone should dress like them, would they still dress the same? And it, it was interesting because there was no resounding yes or no. It was like some guys were like, yeah, if everyone dressed better, it would be a more beautiful world. Mm-hmm. True statement. But a lot of them were kind of hurt by the idea of people dressing like them because it's such a an artistic expression for, I, I think for that capital D. Yeah. You know, it's, it's an expressive art form. So, you know, do you see that sort of expression come through? Like every dandy, every capital D dandy is different. Yeah. Well, I think that the capital D dandies are definitely people who, yeah, they are very different. They, they're all obsessed with elegance, but they can define that in different ways. So, you know, you have some of them who are more retro and vintage, and then you have some of them who are very much like, fashion forward, looking at runways and runway designers and stuff. Mm. And then you have people who are, uh, you know, very focused on classic tailoring. And, and uh, so you've got different kind of elements. I mean, you've got some, it's everything from people who are like obsessed with the width of a lapel or the way a buttonhole sold to people who are wearing a full face of makeup. I mean, mm. so there's, all, there's room for a lot of different kinds of expressions of that, but elegance is the main watchword. And as far as, um, people not dressing the same and all that. We did these books at an interesting time because, I mean, I think part of the reason we were able to get them published now is because there's been such a resurgence of interest in menswear and in in suits and in dressing up and that kind of thing. So um, it it was hard for us to kind of figure out, okay, who, who's doing this for, for forever and who is going to be onto something else in a year or two? Um, Because, we are at a time when there are a lot of people who are doing this because it's what's popular right now. And that's fine. You know, that's, I'm glad it's popular right now. It's good for business. Um, but the people that we're really interested in learning from and talking to are the people who do it no matter what. Hmm. I think you said in, in one of the interviews, I saw these are people who are doing it when no one's looking. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The other thing that was interesting is there was no, individual characteristic of a dandy they were men who spanned every race every religion every sexual mm-hmm. orientation it was like yeah. you said the pursuit of elegance yeah and we it's funny we had a lot of um uh <laughs> i'll sort of give you a little anecdote there was a um i won't name names but there was a certain person who had an online store that was selling our book and he, uh, I ran into him at one of the trade shows and he said, oh, I can't, I have to, I'd stop selling your book. I said, why? And he said, well, my customer said it was too gay. So I said, all right, well, first of all, your customer can go to hell. <laughs> Second of all, I know exactly one third of the men in that book are gay. So it's more straight than gay. So you're wrong. Um, so, I mean, people, ha- people have very different kind of notions they, but they were some some very strong characters. I remember uh, you t- you telling me that one of the guys you met who was a lawyer took you to a strip club in the yeah. middle of the day. 
Yeah, he took his, I mean, he's he's a very famous guy. He's um, uh, Tom Wolf's Bonfire of the Vanities is dedicated to him. Uh, his name is uh, Ed Hayes. And he's one of those famous uh, trial lawyers in America, uh, in New York. He's like notorious. He has been since the 80s. And he's got a very he's a famous trial. defense attorney, right? Huh? He's a famous defense attorney. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, he, he um, I ran into him on the street after, shortly after the book had come out, actually. And he said, uh, oh, hey, I'm going to a strip club. Do you want to come with me? And I said, well, I don't have anything to do. And I can't turn this down because this will be interesting. <laughs> and we went. And as we are walking in, he just goes, oh, I'm this place's lawyer. And I was like, oh, of course you are. That's why we're, <laughs> why we're walking in for free and being directed to the VIP lounge. Like, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> so can you be like a Tony Soprano kind of character and still have a dandy mode without being gay? Oh, yeah. I mean, even on The Sopranos, um, what's his name? Uh, uh, oh, God. Uh, the one who's played by Little Stevie. Um, like, I saw your uh, uh, me. Me, your oh, meme about Maroon 5, and it's like Marone 5, uh, and then post Marone. And I, I couldn't get that out of my head. <laughs> so. yeah. I think there are lots of um, – there's totally, like – whether they're obsessed with elegance or not, I don't know. But there's definitely, I think, particularly in the in the criminal classes and in the sort of like shady areas of things, there is a kind of flair for dandies. And you always see boxers always mm -hmm. dressed up like really flamboyant. Um, I've been watching Better Call Saul a lot lately, and he wears those like crazy colorful suits because he's like kind of a shady lawyer. <laughs> and I think that's, that's like, especially in America, I think there's a kind of thing of like shady people dressing up. You know? I mean, is Dandy an American version of Sprezzatura? No, 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 no. I wouldn't say that. No, I think Sprezzatura is a very, very specific uh, Italian thing. And um, I think Dandy's – first of all, I don't – I wouldn't say – I say if you were going to give Dandy a, a nationality, it would probably be English because because eccentricity is such a big element of it and eccentricity is such a big part of the, the British character. Um, but I think dandy now is definitely a, a global term, and I've met people. I've met capital D dandies everywhere from Johannesburg to Tokyo. So um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't nationalize it. I mean, like the De Neapolitans who put a lot of rings and have like those uh, mm -hmm. marble beads on their, uh, you know, all of that. Like, okay, they say that's Prezzatura. So is that different than a dandy? Yeah, I think that's well. First of all, I mean those those examples specifically; those are very much kind of like current trends, or or, or they were at some point or something. So, I think that um, trend following usually, if you, if you meet a re, like a capital D dandy, they're usually setting trends, um, not deliberately necessarily, but you usually see people copying what they're doing. Um, they don't really pay much attention to trends. Most of the people who we meet who are like that are kind of like they're just off on their own thing, and it's great. Um, so I think Sprezzatura is a much more kind of like, um, maybe I could, I could say it this way, like dandyism, dandyism is like a whole uh, genre of painting and Sprezzatura is like a particular kind of brush. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. it's a, it's a way of, it's one, one tool in your toolbox or something is to, to be like, okay, well, I'm going to emphasize this idea of having something that's like, not perfect, but that's kind of, you know, deshabille. But dandyism would be more about perfectionist, right? Like it would be more. Uh, yes and no. I mean, because I think, I think it's more about obsessiveness, definitely. But you can be obsessed over making something look imperfect. Um, mm -hmm. Like Bill Brummel, who is, who is like considered to be kind of the first real dandy or, or 
person who had that title given to them or that name, he would spend hours messing up his cravat so it didn't look perfect. You know, um, just like you got people, oh, sorry, there's a very pretty blue jay outside the window. I've been bird watching, so I get distracted sometimes by the birds. <laughs> um, he's really gorgeous. So there you go. Um, <laughs> but uh, there's, um, there's a whole, uh, like, yeah, he, he, he would just, he would spend hours messing up his cravat after tying it to make sure that it didn't look like he was tying it too carefully. That's, that would be called Spretzator, I'm sure. Um, and so that was, that was like a tool that he used. He wouldn't have called it Spretzator because he was English. He would have called it, I don't know what he would have called it. Like, I mean, when, when we were uh, uh, discussing about what should be the show name, uh, uh, Dana already, Dana is actual tailor. He knows how to sew and he makes, uh, uh, he, he's currently making masks, uh, but he makes yeah. uh, uh, caps and uh, uh, bags. Uh, so, so he had a thing called uh, a brand, a full website called Dapper Villain. I was like, dude, mm. actually, this name is dope as fuck. But yeah. I don't know how will the menswear industry treat it because the word dandy and dapper is so uh, hated by these classic menswear oh. guys, which is a lot of. Uh, <laughs> that is funny that it's the word dapper, not the word villain that you're that you think would be. More oh yeah, I don't care about the word villain. Yeah, we yeah. are villains. I mean, like, <laughs> if anybody who follows me already, yeah. they already kind of know that I'm a. <laughs> Uh, not your traditional uh, Fox yeah. Brothers kind of guy, but um... dapper is, is, I think, a very popular word here in America. It's, it's when I when I walk down the street, people say, "Oh, you look dapper." They very rarely say, "Oh, look at the dandy." Um, I think dandy is a is a word that's much more familiar to Europe, um, mm. whereas uh, dapper, I think, is something that people think of in America a lot. Um, I think for me, I always thought of the word dandy as being associated with uh, sort of uh, African culture, actually. Hmm. Oh, okay. Interesting. Because the first like real people I met who called themselves dandies were were African gentlemen here in in Asia, hmm. and they dress very much like the people you describe, where they are right, you know, elegant, but at the same time expressing a very unique style. And until yeah, we started, until I started doing research for this interview, I didn't realize how like the real history of the word. Yeah, I mean, in in Africa, it's a huge thing. There's a there's a book called um, Dandelion, which is all about black dandies, and it's not, it's not just in Africa; it's around the world. So it's about people in uh, the whole Africa diaspora. So it's about African Americans. It's about Caribbeans, um, and then also, I mean, I've spent two weeks in Congo with the Sapors, uh, who are very famous for the way they dress. Um, Rose and I went to Johannesburg and met all kinds of. Uh, interesting dandies there. Um, I've met people from Namibia, from Ghana, from uh, all over Africa. So it, there's definitely a tradition. You went, you went there yourself? Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah, I went to Congo. I've been to Congo and uh, for, I mean, I've been to other parts of Africa but for dandy-related stuff, South Africa and Congo we've been to. So you actually went there with roles to uh, shoot these people? Uh, to South Africa, yes. Uh, Congo, I went on my own because that was before I met Rose. I just opened a company in South Africa. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, oh, just uh, January. It's called Kapra Fabrics. Uh, you, uh, you're uh, uh, Punjabi as well, so Kapra yeah. means fabrics. Yeah, and uh, it's just this hipster brand that I created uh, six years ago, and I just yeah. used it to because um, all the fabrics. I, I, are the are you I know the people from like GQ South Africa and stuff. And, uh, nice, bro. Nice. Yeah. So I, I want to get into, uh, Natty, some of your, your education background, because you actually designed your own degree at NYU, right? 
Yeah, so I was part of a, a school at New York University called Gallatin where you created your own major. And um, it was kind of a place where uh, there were a lot of people there who, who sort of didn't know what they wanted to do. And so they thought, okay, this will be easy. I'll go here and I'll just kind of figure it out. Um, but then there were people like me who had a more kind of specific idea. And so my main interests were English and history. And so I could have gone to the College of Arts and Science and tried to do a dual degree in English and history. Um, but I thought it'd be more interesting if I could craft those two things. And then I didn't, I didn't, I mean, like, it's not like they had classes on dandyism that I could take, but um, I was able to take classes in art history, classes in romantic literature, stuff from specific time periods, um, and then also do independent studies based on a particular theme so that I would have a final thesis and my final thesis happened to be on dandyism. So really, I mean, I, I sort of say that I created a major in dandyism and I did study it a lot while I was there, but most of the classes I, were ta I was taking were um, Regency to Victor through Victorian period uh, history and literature. Um, so. Did you go into the program knowing that dandyism was something you were interested in or did the interest in dandyism come from the interest in history and literature sort of melding over those four years? Yeah. Well, so I had it, it, the first year or two, I had a, like so many people, I had a lot of uh, required courses and just mm. you know, surveys of literature and history and that kind of stuff. And I was trying to figure out, cause my, my big interest before that uh, when I was in high school and stuff was I was into punk rock and uh, I was into subcultures and I was into mods and, you know, teddy boys and skinheads and all this kind of stuff. And I was sort of fascinated by why young people dressed a certain way and listened to a certain kind of music. Um, so that uh, kind of, I was like, well, how can I, how can that obsession of mine be a part of what I learn? And when I looked into it, I was like, oh, this, this, a lot of this stuff, particularly the sort of male elements of it, have their roots in this idea of dandyism. So let me explore that more. So that's kind of how that came around. So are there any punk rock dandies? I mean that's a that's a tricky question because it's obviously like punk rock is not really famous for elegance, um, but you I mean there are people whose style I think is so uh, it's like very iconic or it, they've got a certain flair or dash to them. They've definitely got elements of dandyism. Johnny Rotten's definitely one of them. Uh, um, Dave Vanian from from the Damned. Uh, Paul Weller, you know, I mean he's a sort of he, of of them all, he's the one who's the most kind of dressed up and fancy because he's like the mod guy. Yeah. Um, but he's not quite as uh, eccentric as as someone like say Johnny Rotten. You know? So they, those guys might be like forty five percent capital D. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. I mean, they've got they've got still on the high side, huh? Still on the high side. Yeah, still on the high side. Yeah. I mean, dandyism. I think it's so much. It's a combination of the visual element and the personality. And I think those two things really need to both be there. And so I think you can, I've, I've met people who dress terribly, but have very kind of dandyish personalities. I'm like, you know, mm. if this person really cared about how they look, they'd be, they'd totally be a dandy. Mm. And, and that, what is a dandy personality? Well, you've got to be eccentric. You've got to be witty. Uh, and you've got to have a kind of, um, I think you've got to be a little bit contrarian. You have to kind of like, uh, set yourself apart from society, but also also somehow know how to be the center of attention, you know? Mm -hmm. um, like you're, you're different from everyone there, but everyone kind of is interested in you. <laughs> um, and then I've also met people who are like 
impeccably dressed and who look great, but their personality does not scream dandy. You know, they're just they're just very good at dressing, mm. and they like and they like it. You know, they, they're they're those are lowercase d dandies. Because, like you said, the the uppercase D, hundred percent uppercase, is a full time job. Yeah, and that yeah that requires a lot of uh, dedication and kind of and uh, obsession. Now, timeline wise, you then you end up going to graduate school for journalism, mm-hmm. correct? Yeah, Columbia. and your thesis actually led to a fellowship, which sort of spawned into the I Am Dandy book. Yeah, so I was in a course at Columbia at the journalism school, which was all about book writing. Because um, I went into journalism school with the idea that I always wanted to write books. I didn't want to just be a newspaper reporter, yeah. um, partly because there aren't very many jobs left for newspaper reporters. So I, um, you know, I've written for for newspapers and stuff, but I've I've I always my goal was always to write books, and I got into this very difficult to get into class. It was kind of I really gambled on this whole thing because the reason I went to journalism at Columbia school, because I wanted to get in this class and only a dozen kids got into this class each, each time. Mm-hmm. So I managed to do it. Um, I think I was sort of single-mindedly obsessed with the idea of writing books. And my pitch was originally a book about the history of dandyism, which there uh, hasn't been one since the sixties. Um, and I thought I still think it, that there should there should be one, but um, it was very hard to sell. Uh, but I got a, I got a fellowship for it, which gave me money to do things like go to Congo, go around Europe, interview people, do archival research. Um, but I, I went through two agents; neither of them were able to sell it to anyone. People didn't really get the idea. Um, and then I met Rose, uh, the photographer Rose Callahan. We worked on a couple articles together for the chat magazine and uh, we found that we worked really well together and we were both had this interest and we thought, well, maybe we could do a book together. And then Gestalten, this publisher in Berlin, got in touch with her about her blog and said, we love your photos. Do you want to do a photo book all about dandies? And she said, yeah, I'd love to, but I want Natty to write the text because I want it to be, I want, I want the stories to actually be there and not, and not just be, look at these nice clothes. That's nice that you kind of found a, a partnership there because yeah, it, you know, yeah. It, for a guy like me, I wouldn't be well. able to read a whole book, but uh, with photos. And then I, I find your book so interesting because it's like after a while, like after seeing all the pictures, then I'm like, oh, I know this guy now. Let me go read his story. And, mm-hmm. and that's why it's such a good book to have in a tailor shop or mm-hmm. in any custom clothing shop because – you can you can go back to it and it's like with this instagram world it's who looks back two years ago of an instagram profile like uh, but here it's just a well put out i'm trying to help you the link below uh, to buy the book (laughs) (laughs) i mean i i am i'm under no illusion people buy the book because of rose's beautiful photographs that's the first thing they see and they are incredible photos she's one of the most amazing, uh, I, won't, I won't say fashion photographers, but portrait photographers. She really captures her subjects. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that they buy it and hopefully they stick around and they start reading the profiles. And it's also, it's not a linear book, so it's the kind of thing you can dip in and out of pretty easily. But our, our thinking in that, of having full written profiles alongside the photographs, was just that most of the fashion books we see, most of the magazines we see, They'll have editorials where it'll be people looking great. It'll tell you where to buy the clothes. But, I mean, w- one of the ways I'm different from 
uh, people like Simon Crompton or uh, you know other kind of people who are sort of known as menswear writers is because I'm not I'm not as good as, as Simon is at writing about clothes. I, I don't have the attention span to sit down and, and write about that stuff. It doesn't interest me as much as writing about the people. Um, mm. The whole thing for me was, wasn't what are these guys wearing? It was why the hell are these guys dressed like this? Why is this so important to them? Where does this come from? And where is it going? Um, so yeah, for me, it was always, always about the people and not just about the clothes. It was about their obsession. And that's so what the, style the is essentially of, anyways, right? Like a, a gentleman's style is very much the attitude of the person, yeah. even more so than the clothing sometimes. Absolutely. And I, I think that it's, I mean, it's important that there are people uh, like Simon or like Articles of Style or like all these other kind of places where people do write about the clothing itself. Um, there's so much information out there now on the internet about you know, the most gentleman's gazette. I mean, I could, I could name a million other places where yeah. people are really delving into details of how things are made, how people dress, you know, what different kinds of fits are, that sort of thing. Um, I'm glad that's out there. It's not something I could do. I, I couldn't do it well, and I don't. It, my heart wouldn't be in it. Um, that's why the book is so timeless. Like I'm, I, I discovered, I met you uh, much later, um, and uh, but I, I saw your book uh, before I knew anybody, any, any uh, Parisian gentleman. Way oh. before I knew anybody, I saw your book yeah. at a hotel yeah. in Bangkok. Yes. And, um, so for me, you're the first journalist, which I've not met in person for some reason, because you don't um, go to Pitigumo, even though you should be the OG over there because you actually proposed to Sarah in Florence. That's true. Nobody in menswear uh, can say that, right? Like they yeah. all go there. Yeah. Too. Do you, you know, you know, Ignatius Joseph? Yes, yes, yes. I, I had a phone call with him uh, once. Uh, yeah. He, he doesn't know this, but he almost made me miss the proposal. Uh, Why? I had a book signing at his place and then I was supposed to go, I was going to obviously surprise Sarah by taking her to this, uh, the famous English cemetery where Elizabeth Barrett Browning, the great poet is buried. And I was going to propose to her there and the English cemetery closed at four and I had a book signing from two to three, plenty of time. Ignatius kept us at the book signing, signing books because more and more people kept coming and stuff. And I had to get out of there because the, the cemetery was going to close. We just made it like ten minutes before it closed. So, but I, I, uh, I don't think I don't think Ignatius knows that. But I almost was proposing to Sarah because I don't know it now. <laughs> now I, I want to bring up one thing real quick because Jay said he saw your your book for the first time in a hotel in Bangkok. Jay, you live in Bangkok. What are you doing in a hotel? <laughs> I just wanted to change places. I can't jerk off in the same place all the time. <laughs> I oh mean, my, with this oh whole my. quarantine, I mean, I think I watch every single porn on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got to say, this whole Pornhub premium account that you guys set me up on is really <laughs> it's, just, it's just two guys with microphones. <laughs> Now, uh, Natty, one of the things that we do on the show here is uh, we take a little break from the interview and we have 10 questions that we like to run down with the guests. So yeah. if you don't mind, I like to uh, to run through this little game with you and uh, pick your brain. So our, our first question is, you can only use one fabric for the rest of your life. Wool, linen, wool, or cotton? Which one and why? Uh, this is, uh, I mean, so I live in New Orleans where it's very hot and humid. So wool is out. Um, even 
even the most tropical wools, it just mm-hmm. wouldn't work here. So I, I couldn't wear that all the time. Linen, I love. I love linen suits, um, but they're not very versatile. I would have to go with cotton. Mm-hmm. I would be surprised. I'd be sort of curious as to anyone who wouldn't go for cotton unless they lived in very cold places because cotton's by far, I think, the most versatile of all those fabrics. I can, in winter, you've got corduroy, moleskin, velvet. You've got these sumptuous winter fabrics as well, all cotton. Uh, and then in summer, you've got seersucker, you've got twills, you've got you know all kinds of hop sacks. Um, there's so much that can be done with cotton. I would definitely, definitely do cotton. Yeah, cotton all day. Yeah, and and you can even on the on like lighter weight stuff. If you do it online and unstructured and all that, you can even ha- you know hand wash it, which I do with some of my white cotton suits, and it gives it that nice, really soft kind of uh, feel. You know, fun fact: Jay said that he would actually go with polyester. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, guys see that. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> so our, our second one: What is your favorite menswear item? Oh, that's really tough. I mean, the one that, like, one that I personally own, or one that I sort of in general something that you see out there. You can it could be something you own. It could be something someone else has. Something that doesn't exist. And chances are, if you like it, you probably already own it. True. Yeah, I mean, I really, I do, I really love cowboy boots. I have a real thing for cowboy boots. Um, Wow. Which uh, my dad's from Texas, so maybe that sort of comes from my I love like Western movies and stuff. I just think they're so uh, again. There's a, another. There's they're like an incredibly diverse thing. You say cowboy boots, you get one thing in your head, but you get there's so much range there. The only problem is when I started collecting them, um, I suddenly had to start making a lot of bootcut pants that don't look very good with other shoes. So <laughs> now I've got like a cowboy boot wardrobe and like a regular shoe wardrobe. I think I have to start making like two pairs of pants for every suit I, I get so that I can <laughs> I wear with cowboy boots. Do you wear cowboy boots with suits? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Nice. Yeah. When you do that, do you wear a bolo? Uh, sometimes I have a really nice bolo with like a giant um, uh, turquoise uh, on it that my dad gave me. I love I, love, I really do. I love Western wear. I wrote an article um, last year for Inside Hook magazine about like the return of Western wear. Um and it was very, very popular at the last pit team. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Again, I was ahead of the curve. You are. Would you do that in pity? I, I really oh. wonder what would you be wearing in pity? I mean, I've been to pity twice, and I tried to wear things that people wouldn't expect. Like there was one day when I was walking around in like a very nice flannel suit and a Misfits t-shirt, and nobody took my picture. Um so if that didn't work, I was like, I want to be the guy walking around in like a band shirt. And now apparently like Wade Quo does that and <laughs> he gets photographed and uh, Ethan Newton does that and he gets photographed. But You didn't have an Instagram account. Now that you have uh, more than uh, a lot of followers, uh, you, you, you'll yeah. probably get more yeah. uh, photographed, especially after this interview with uh, millions of viewers. <laughs> Literally dozens of viewers. Uh, <laughs> no, I don't know if I go dozens. <laughs> now, the, the fact that you said cowboy boots is a nice segue into our next question. And that is, is it ever okay to wear denim on denim on denim on denim, you know, i.e. the Canadian tuxedo? I, uh, <laughs> I will confess I do wear a Canadian tuxedo sometimes. 
Wow. Um, I know. It's, it's something you would not expect from me. It's something people are very genuinely shocked about. But um, I have a black Levi's jacket and black Levi's 501s. And that is my outfit for like if I have to do stuff in hot weather. Like if I have to go out here in New Orleans, um, I'll do that. And, you know, if I, I don't know what the occasion might be. But if there's something where like I absolutely cannot wear a suit, hmm. I'll wear that. Um Coming from a dandy, I mean that's uh, that's high high praise for the uh, Canadian tux. Yeah, I actually, I mean, I think it, I, <laughs> I think it looks nice. It also, I mean, I think part of that is when I was uh, a teenager, when I was into the whole mod thing, um, mm. that was very much like a, a look that you'd see, um, like Keith Moon from the Who used to wear like a white uh, white denim jacket and white jeans and like the, the Target shirt. Yep. So I think it's it's kind of a whole over from that. So do you go with the cowboy boots? Do you throw in a pair of docks? What do you do? I don't have docks anymore. I have a pair of uh, – uh, sometimes I, I wear uh, Chuck Taylors if I need to okay. wear sneakers. But um, I have Great a pair of uh, Paul Smith like zip boots with a, a heel on them. But they're, they're 501, so they're not boot cut. So I'd have ah. to put them into my boots, and that would look kind of weird. Uh, you could rock some mocks with that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I've probably worn them with like velvet slippers and stuff. I, I really, there's something about if I'm as far as denim goes, I don't wear it very often. But when I do, it's definitely Levi's. It's very, very classic. I, I have friends who are like denim nerds, you know, who are like total denim otaku's who you know obsess over like Japanese mills and stuff. And I'm very impressed with their obsession and fascination with that kind of thing. I'm not like that. I like 501s partly because of their history, I think. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Nice. I think there's probably some pictures. There are definitely pictures of me. I think at Hank Williams. In a Canadian tuxedo? Um, yeah, there's a picture of me at Hank Williams' grave with a cowboy hat and all denim, I think. Nice. <laughs> Classic. All right. So, so next question up mm. has to do with tailoring. British, Italian, American, what's your choice? Um, well, first off, I'll say I think that those distinctions are becoming less uh, clear uh, as time goes on. I think that's yeah. partly because of the internet, partly because of the way people exchange their knowledge. I, when I, One of the first times I ever hung out and talked to Bruce Boyer, the, the famous menswear uh, historian and writer, um, he said, you know, when he was younger, he could stand on uh, Madison Avenue and like watch guys walk by in suits and say, oh, he's Italian. That's an Italian suit. That's a French suit. That's an English suit. Um, that's becoming less clear. And I think especially as you're seeing Asian cities, um, African cities, uh, places where people are starting their own homegrown local uh, tailoring scenes, you're seeing these kind of lines being blurred a little bit. Um, having said that, as far as like traditional Italian, English, American tailoring goes, I have always had a preference for English, I think. Um, I always prefer the way it looks. I like that kind of very uh, almost military um, put-togetherness of it uh, with like a, you know, the strong, sturdy canvas and, and that kind of stuff. I'll admit the Italian stuff is a lot more comfortable to wear. Um, especially in hot weather like this, and um, but I like I've always preferred the look of English tailoring, and uh, and what I will say again, going back to my whole Western wear thing, is I think that as far as American tailoring goes, the greatest unsung heroes of that 
are people who made Western wear. Um, people like Nudie Cohn, uh, like Manuel in Nashville. In, in Nashville and in other cities, there are now also a lot of young tailors who are doing like Western suits with full embroidery on them and all that kind of stuff. And I think they are true artists and I don't think they get the recognition they deserve from uh, our industry. Yeah, from from people who are in the sort of mainstream tailoring world, because, because I mean, it, it seems like our industry would be into that kind of thing, but we're not talking about it. And it's so interesting you brought that up. Well, it's because they, they I mean, and even within that world, it's very much considered stage wear. It's usually stuff for musicians to be wearing on stage, so it's considered for the most part, it's kind of costumes. Um, but that doesn't take away from the incredible craftsmanship because these are people who are not only cutting and sewing their own suits. They're doing embroidery and beadwork and sequins. And I mean, so they're using couture techniques on this stuff. And there are a lot of them are self-taught. It's very, very impressive. And I think people who are interested in tailoring should take a look at those people because it might be more flamboyant than the kind of stuff they're used to. But man, is it creative and man, are they talented. Who should we talk to then? Well, uh, there's about to be a documentary coming out about Manuel, who's um, probably the most famous, uh, certainly the most famous living Taylor. He was Johnny Cash's Taylor. Nice. Um, he's made suits for every country and Western rock and roll singer. You know that that gold lame suit that Elvis wore on that famous album cover? That was Manuel. So he's he's done he did suits for Hank Williams. I mean, he's he's the old school guy. But then there's Fort Momsum in in Austin, Texas. Um, there's uh, Who's Your Built in in Indiana. Um, there's so many people who are young people who are doing this uh, for, for me. like you see Post Malone wearing them all the time on the Grammys. Diplo's been wearing them. Like they're making a comeback for musicians, but uh, it's nice because it's this craft of chain stitch embroidery in particular that's that was kind of thought to be lost for a while, and people are getting back into it. Nice. So next question: mm-hmm. What is your favorite accessory, and why? Oh. Uh, I mean, that's, that's tough. I had to, it's probably this ring that, that Sarah gave me. Let's see if I can get it. There you go. You can kind of see that. There you go. It's a human heart. And, Interesting. Uh, it's got, um, a line from a Petrarch sonnet around it it's in Italian. It says, Ecosi desio me mena, which I believe means, so desire carries me forward. Um, I have other sort of accessories that I, you know, love, but this is, this is something I wear every single day and it has a you know, special meaning. I think that's, that's a very important thing when it comes to accessories, that it has some kind of provenance that's interesting and meaningful for you. You know, you know it's it, interesting. It would be funny if, uh, if it translates to something else, uh, totally. Yeah. <laughs> I like onions or something like that. Like Chinese character tattoos. <laughs> you, know? You, you know, it's interesting. <laughs> This is interesting. You're our second guest to have a, a signet ring be their favorite yeah. accessory. Oh, who's the first? It's um, Jason from Atlanta. Uh, okay. He owns a J- place J- called uh, Real, Real Black Men's Wear. Okay, cool. My wife's from Atlanta. Nice. nice. <laughs> so she likes the, uh, what was it, the um, lemon pepper flats? What are lemon pepper flats? It's a, it's a chicken wing term. Oh, I don't have to add. She's a vegetarian, so maybe not. Unless they have like tofu, lemon, yellow flats. Yeah, she likes. Are you a vegetarian too? 
No, no, I'm not. No. no, but if you've ever seen Pulp Fiction, you know that his woman being a vegetarian damn well makes him one. Oh, yeah, that's true. I don't eat very much meat at home. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. A line from uh, Sam, Samuel Jackson's character in Pulp Fiction. He's, yeah. like, he's like, can I try your burger? He's like, my, my girl's a vegetarian, which pretty much makes me one. Yeah, it's <laughs> true. So let's move on to the next question. It's, uh, mm-hmm. it's kind of a generalization, but how on point should a men's watch game be? Ah, this is something where I am completely uh, – uh, I don't, it's not even uninterested. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm at odds with so many people I love and admire, including Jay and Matt Hranek and Waco, and I have – no interest in watches. Um, and I think, uh, I, I sometimes I kind of have fantasies about a pocket watch, but even then, um, I think partly they, they annoy my wrist. And also, uh, I think, especially for a dandy, if you're a, a dandy or an inspiring dandy like I am, I think that um, not knowing the time is the ultimate luxury. Nice. I think if you have a white tie thing, right? Yeah. No, it's a very Indian thing because uh, Indians do this all the time. That's why they're always late. (laughs) Yeah. What time is it? What time is it? Who cares? I I I don't know. I I think that the people I know who are into watches are people who are also very into gadgets and stuff. And I I don't think I quite have that bug. Um, I like fountain pens a lot. I feel like that maybe that's my version of a watch. It's like I sort of obsess over nibs and things like that. But um, I don't feel like the way watches feel on my wrist. I don't like the way they look. I, I find them kind of heavy and uncomfortable. Um, and I think sometimes sometimes they, they just come off as obnoxious. Like, you know, you'll sometimes see a guy at, like, next to you at the bar who's just like, you know. They have flashing his watch. What? No, all that? Yeah. No, uh-huh. I mean, it's just like, oh. <laughs> all right, guys, we cannot stop talking about their fucking watch. I mean, to be <laughs> fair, I am, I like walk into a bar dressed like this. So that's like the, the equivalent of like a full body version of being like, oh, this, huh? What? Huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Yeah. Very true. <laughs> so you don't that's wear watches true. at all. You don't wear watches. I have not worn a watch since I was uh, a teenager, probably. Yeah. Huh. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, and, I'm, and I'm very, very punctual, though. I'm incredibly punctual. Um, Do a lot of dandies not wear watches? No, I don't think it's definitely. I don't think it's a hard and fast thing. I've definitely met quite a few people who love their watches, you know, and who I would call dandies. Uh, I've met, I mean, dandies with pocket watches too, as, and that's like a very kind of flamboyant accessory to have with a, a gold chain and all that kind of stuff. I think that's, you know, it's fine. It's it's it is it's definitely to each their own. I just. Um, uh, you, do you know Sean Crowley, who owns Crowley Vintage? No. He's, you should follow his Instagram account. He's fantastic. Very funny guy. A good friend of mine. Uh, he and I both have this kind of thing where we don't really get either um, watches or cigars. We don't We don't love those two things. Um, drinks, though? What about drinks? Huh? Drinks? Oh, I mean, I love drinks, yeah. I, although I don't like whiskey. <laughs> no. No, I like, like champagne. Um, okay. And then uh, yeah, what's the other one that everyone likes? Cars. I don't know how to drive, but I love trains. So I think <laughs> a lot of a lot of the menswear world, their stuff is like watches, car, whiskey, cigar. And for me, it's like 
cigarettes, champagne, fountain pens, and trains. Right? <laughs> it all rhymes, so that works nice. <laughs> <laughs> now, on to the next question. Uh, the style icon that you most look up to? Um, I, I, well, I have a few that I go back and forth between. I really love Tom Wolfe. It's why I like wearing white suits so much. I think Tom Wolfe and Mark Twain both because I, I like them so much as kind of personalities mm -hmm. and writers. Um, so the fact that they both famously wore white suits and Steve Martin also used to wear white suits all the time. I, I really like, that's why I love wearing white suits. I wish I could. I think you're wearing a Huddersfield as well. Just I am. I'm wearing my, my Huddersfield um, uh, gabardine. Um, but I... Um, I love, yeah, love white suits. And I have a Huddersfield uh, white corduroy suit, which is really hard to keep clean, but I love it. Um, nice. it, gets, it gets like lint on it like that, you know? <laughs> yeah. uh, but because uh, white corduroy, it's crazy. It's like white velvet. Like, well, you know, it's a crazy, it's a crazy thing to wear. But um, I also really like Brian Ferry. Big, uh, big inspiration for me because he, I think, struck it like whereas someone like I have a lot of friends who David Bowie is their style icon, um, and then I have a lot of friends who like uh, you know the Duke of Windsor is their style icon, and for me Brian Ferry is someone who's like right between those two things. He's very classic, but he's also very glam, um, and I really like that. So I think those those are the two who sort of spring to mind immediately. Um, yeah. My personal style icons. Taking your taking that into consideration now, and knowing that your your fascination with dandyism, how formal should a man dress on a daily basis? Um, well, this kind of goes back to like the thing about do you want everyone to to do you think everyone should dress up all the time? You know, and I think that might make the world a more boring place. I I know that. Um, particularly a lot of people I know who are really into vintage stuff, they, they, they spend a lot of time looking at old pictures and stuff like, Oh, look at how nice everybody looks, but it's not nice if you have to dress up like that all the time. Yeah. So, first of all, I'm very much against, uh, in most circumstances, I'm against formal dress codes. Um, unless it's like a private event or something like that, I get it. But like, I'm against the idea of, of people having to wear uniforms if they don't have, if there's no reason for them to or something. Um, I will say that for, um, I think it's always better to be overdressed than underdressed. Um, I also think that uh, it very much depends on, on where you live, not just in terms of climate, but in terms of what kind of city it is uh, or what kind of, you know, I have friends who live in the country who like, you know, live in really rural areas and like have horses and stuff. And they, they love to dress up and they dress like, you know, country gentlemen in tweed or something. Mm -hmm. And that's cool too, but like, I lived in Baltimore for two years, and Baltimore is probably like the least dressy place. I I once walked down the street in like a plain navy blue suit without a tie, and Sarah was wearing like a very ordinary dress, like not a white dress, and kids stopped us and asked us if we were getting married. And like, this is like for Baltimore, this is like really dressed up. Uh, and it's like people would be kind of hostile. Um, I mean, I haven't gotten called a faggot on the street since I was a punk rocker. You know, when I was a teenager or whatever, it happened to me in Baltimore. Whereas here in New Orleans, in New York, it's a place where like lots of people dress up. And so everyone's just kind of like, oh, yeah, okay, that person's dressed up. No big deal. Here in New Orleans, it's like people stop you on the street. They're like, man, you look great. That's excellent. This is a city that like embraces eccentricity and fashion and style. I feel like London's kind of like that too. 
Paris is a little bit more like New York, where it's kind of like, oh, yes, that's very, that person looks nice. You know, you don't really talk about it, but you sort of admire them from afar. So a lot of it depends on where you live, I think, and, um, and, and how confident you are, I think. I, but I don't think there's any hard and fast rule for how formal people should be. Like, I've already, I've already confessed on this podcast to, to wearing denim, so. Yeah. <laughs> denim on denim. Credibility's out the window. <laughs> so now taking that, that a little bit further with the formality, the next question is to tie or not to tie. Mm. Well, I wore a tie for this interview. Uh, sometimes I do not wear ties. And I actually, I wrote an article for The Rake few years ago about neckties and I'm absolutely fascinated by neckties because and from a very from an intellectual point of view first of all I'm fascinated about neckties from like a material point of view because they're actually much I mean you got you guys would know this but most people don't realize that they are quite difficult to make a nice necktie yeah. it requires real skill I mean it's it's not just it's, it's, yeah. You need to be able to do it as a slip stitch. Like there's all kinds of stuff that goes into making a nice tie. Um, so I think when people learn that, it's kind of like a very special thing. Um, it's also it's the, the part of a person's. If a person has to dress conservatively for their job, it is the one part where they get to kind of like spruce it up a bit, which I think is nice. Um, but also, what I find most fascinating about it is it's the only accessory I can think of where wearing it and not wearing it, both make a statement. Hmm. Um, when, when you say that, Andrew Yang comes to mind for me. Yeah, yeah well, he said that up on the, I mean, also, Andrew Yang gets his suits from Suit Supply and they're too tight. But we'll get, <laughs> we'll get that out of the way. Um, I, I like him a lot. He was the only candidate with a real sense of humor, which, so I'll, I'll miss him, but. Um, he is witty, he's witty. Yeah, he was he, the funniest, he was the most at ease. Anyway, I liked him. Um, but yeah, he mentioned that like, everyone was talking about the fact that he wasn't wearing a tie. And it's funny because I mean nowadays most people don't wear ties on a day to day basis, but we still expect our politicians to. Um, yeah. But even going back to like uh, going back to the early nineteenth century, Lord Byron, who was you know the great romantic poet of his day and quite a dandy himself, he was it was considered quite scandalous that he wore his he did not wear a, a, a stock or a cravat he wore his shirt open so you could see you know a little bit of his chest hair poking out this kind of stuff and that was considered like very very sexy and scandalous and kind of you know it went with his image so for him not wearing a t wearing not wearing neckwear because it wouldn't have been a wouldn't have been a tie at that point um, was like a, a real statement and it, and it has been for a long time on the other hand. Uh, in places like Iran, for example, um, wearing neckties is, is frowned upon because it's looked as, on as a symbol of like Western decadence or something, which is wow. which is weird to us. We think like, oh, when people here think of neckties, they think of all stuffy office workers or something, politicians. Yeah. Um, there, like a necktie is like, oh, you know, you're trying to look like a like a Englishman. So necktie is fascinating that way. So I. To answer the question, I think I wouldn't say one way or the other. I would say that the the great thing about neckties is that you can you can say a lot based on either choice and the context it's made in. Um, powerful, powerful accessory in that regard. Powerful accessory, yeah, yeah, and not only because it points at your crotch. <laughs> <laughs> I went, I once went into a. Um, a shop 
and I was like a vintage store and there was a young guy there who, um, he was talking about neckties with someone and he said, Oh, well, you know, neckties are just, uh, to point at your crotch and, you know, show off what like, you know, for insecure men. And, uh, and then he looked at me and he said, you're wearing a bow tie. And I said, I have nothing to do. <laughs> I mean, is that why Trump's tie is so long? Because he wants to hide it <laughs> below his dick. Like I think that his ties is like below his testicles. Yeah. No, I think I think Trump's tie is so long is because nothing else will, t- will touch it. <laughs> no, nothing else is amazing. amazing. <laughs> now let's move into the last question. You know, and we, we think about cinema, and I, I think you know, in cinema historically has had impeccably dressed men, shabbily dressed men, right? But th- there's always some that kind of stand out. Mm. When you think of of a movie of cinema, what's a movie character to you? The character that just their style game is on point. They embo- they embody everything that you want to see in men's style. Ah, I mean, so, all right, I'll give you the first one that came to mind, and this is going back to, and this is not, like, again, this is not what someone would expect me to say, because it's not someone like, you know, it's not James Bond, and it's not, uh... Anyone who says James Bond on the show, is is, they're getting roasted right away, because it's such an easy answer. Yeah, well, it's an answer, and also it's, it's, I mean, if we're going to talk about James Bond, my favorite is Roger Moore, um, which is not a popular answer, but I think it's because he was the silliest. I like that about him. But for me, it's probably, I think, the, the coolest looking guy in terms of the way he dresses, the way he moves, everything about him is Gary Cooper in High Noon. So again, we're going with Western stuff. Yeah. But I'll, I'll, I'll sort of, and Bruce Boyer did a whole book about Gary Cooper's style. Um, he's, he's very undervalued uh, in terms of style, but he's got a very cool hat, with a round brim, I mean, a round, a round crown, um, what's sometimes called a gambler style. And he's got kind of short vest. Uh, and he's got he's a very tall guy. And he's got a short vest with very long legs. So he looks like a real kind of lanky cowboy type. Um, and the whole, I don't know if, you've, if, you, if you're familiar with the movie, the whole movie is yeah. him around the town trying to get people to help him fight off these bandits that are about to come. And everyone else is kind of a coward. Barack Obama's favorite movie, by the way. Um, I, I believe it's Barack Obama and Bill Clinton's favorite movie. No, Barack Obama and George W. Bush's favorite movie, I think. Um, oh. Yeah, one thing they have in common. But, uh, um, they, yeah, he's he's just got this kind of, this grim determination, and his style is just so, like, that's what a, a Texas sheriff should look like. And it, look, he, he looks tough, but he looks put together, and he looks ready for action. I don't know, I just, I love it. I think it's... He means like uh, something I I always the way he looks something I've always admired. You know, and you say and you say that, and I think to myself of uh, one of my favorite movie characters, style wise, mm. is Val Kilmer's version of Doc Holliday in Tombstone. In yeah. that red vest that just popped, yeah yeah. You know? Well, it's interesting you say that because I mean I think in a lot of Western movies. There's a definitely an overlap between like cowboys and dandies. There's usually it's not always the good guy. Sometimes it's the bad guy. But there's usually someone who's like the dandy. And it's like in in um, 
in the, Mag- the original Magnificent Seven. Oh, I can't remember his name. Robert. Can't remember the actor's name. Uh, but he's he's like a, a gunfighter who always wears you know unlined leather gloves and always has a vest on and his you know all his ties always tied perfectly. Whereas all the other guys are kind of rough cowboys. He's like clearly a gambler or something. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's Gary Cooper looking cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is kind of like a Cary Grant, like how people would uh, say about Cary Grant, right? Yeah, and Cary Grant's probably someone that a lot of people name. But when I think of yeah. specifically him, Gary Cooper in High Noon, he's a little bit older at that point. Um, he's kind of, yeah, I don't know. It's a very, very masculine, but also a very kind of like, um, I, I don't know. It's a, it's, I'm at a loss for words mm. thinking about how cool he looks. <laughs> Jay, can you pull you up see, uh, uh, Blue Val Bird again? Doc Holliday? Sorry? Pull up Val Kilmer as Doc Holliday. Okay. You know, and I think of, we talk about dandies. I think of that Doc Holliday very much as the dandy. Yeah. The hero for sure. He's not a good guy. He's not a bad guy in that movie. The way he talks, the way he dresses, the way yeah. he carries himself. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's sarcastic. He's yeah. kind of like you know, um, there's there's very much like usually when it comes to these kind of western or southern archetypes, the the dandy character is usually the kind of riverboat gambler, you know, yeah. the guy who's like maybe got a little mustache and he's got and he's got like an embroidered vest, and he's you know like conning people out of their money. Yeah, I mean exactly. That's that's basically how I dressed on Mardi Gras. That is very cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love this vest, this whole look that he's put together here. And like I said, the way he talks and carries himself. You're a daisy if you do. I'm your Huckleberry. Yeah. That's just my game. Yeah, it's great. I know. He's, got, he's witty and he's uh, he's like kind of a, a jerk. <laughs> the dandies are. But he's, a, he's like a, he's a very skillful jerk. Yeah. Are you a coupling guy? Uh, sometimes, yeah, I've got, I've got some cufflinks on right now. They've got little bulldogs on them. Um, not always though. Uh, it very much depends on, on the, the outfit. Um, when I do like, uh, white, when I do white cuffs and collars, I tend to do, uh, French cuffs. I really want to get into the Western, uh, menswear that you talked about. It's, it's so interesting. That's, that's very new to me. And that for me would be a foreign subject. You could start at my uh, the article I wrote for Inside Hook a little while ago. If you look on their website, you can find it. It's just about like the new crop of Western wear designers, and there are a lot of links in it to people's work. Um, yeah, and I'm sure they would want um, our industry to kind of talk about them and uh, you know uh, get some light on 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 this. It's interesting because I mean I interviewed so many of these people, and there really is like a disconnect between this industry and theirs. Like they they're they're buying you know, gabardine stuff, but like they just go to their local fabric store and buy it. They're, they don't have swatch books in their, in their places. They don't even like know about that world. They're, they're like, they're, it's weird because they've got one foot in tailoring and one foot in costume making. So it's like, it's a very different kind of mindset. And I think that um, both of those kind of worlds could benefit from, from communicating a bit more and, and from learning from each other and celebrating each other. Yeah. It's, a, it's a tough world to break into, though. I mean, Jay's a good friend of mine. He lives down the street. I don't even have a swatch book. I have to go to the local Chinese Chinatown market to get fabric. <laughs> wow. Wow. That sounds like a personal failing. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's had he, – he's, uh, my, my father tied him a turban. Yeah. Uh, really? 
Nice. Yeah, yeah. Got a great Pretty photo cool. of the three of us on the uh, on the couch together in the living room, and his dad tied a turban for me, and we're all just sitting there hanging out. Well, he got the beard. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he looks like a, a real Sikh too. Yeah. yeah. His dad says I look like a, one of the white one of the light skinned Sikhs. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. You could do that definitely. Oh, I could totally see you in a turban. <laughs> you are a Sikh as well, right? Uh, You're a my, well, my family is. Yeah. Okay, and uh, you um, you are a Maharaja, a bloodline or something. I was at a palace in Udaipur, and he was like, "I'm related to this guy." I'm like, what? <laughs> I, so my great great grandfather was the chief minister of Jin State in Punjab, so he was the Maharaja's right hand man. Um, distantly through through that family tree, we're related to uh, the Maharaja of Patiala at some point or something like that. I mean, who knows about this kind of stuff? It's like, these are the kind of things families tell themselves. What I do know is I know that my great-great-grandfather was the chief minister of Jind and that he and the Maharaja of Jind were both Freemasons in the Lahore Freemason Lodge where um, uh, Rudyard Kipling was the secretary. And they were the only uh, non-white members of the lodge because they were, uh, they were the members of the royal household. Wow. Interesting fact. Photos <laughs> on Instagram stories and uh, they look cool. Um, that's, I mean, that's a clear uh, evidence of uh, uh, being a, yeah, like, I mean, he had a cool turban and. Uh, oh, yeah. He had like a beard too that went like forked beard that you don't see that very often. No, that's a rarity. So yeah. here's the thing though. Like, so you're talking about a Freemason lodge in Lahore, Pakistan. Mm. But well, before, back then it was in Pakistan. Yeah, back, back then it was then India. It. Yeah. But you know, to, to to think about like like that region now, like mm. if there were a Freemason lodge there where people were sitting, you know, it, it'd be I'd be I very was, curious. Into it, the building is still there, but um, Freemasonry was outlawed uh, the minute yeah. Pakistan became a country because it's it's you know irreligious or something. It's not in accord with uh, with Islam, so. So unfortunately, I can't go and like visit the the lodge. Before before moving to New Orleans, you were uh, you were in New York, or where were you at? Uh, sorry, there's a spider there. Um, I was in uh, Baltimore for two years while Sarah was at um, Johns Hopkins getting her nursing degree. But I'm from New York originally, and so before that, I was living in Jersey City, which is like a suburb of New York, basically. I've been to Jersey City. You know, I, love, I loved living in Jersey City. Um, as it's weird, as I, I grew up in Manhattan, I tried living in Brooklyn, I didn't like it, but I love mm. Jersey City for some reason. Really? Yeah. I've been. A have you met some local? Oh, sorry, Dana. Have, have you met some Jersey City? Been, uh, <laughs> We're just gonna talk over each other. <laughs> I'm gonna be like, you say it, and then I'm gonna say it at the same time. <laughs> All right. Okay, I'm gonna say it. Uh, have you met some anyway, local? Anyway, I was thinking uh, that. <laughs> 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 have you met some local dandies in uh new orleans because i suppose there would be some no um yeah i mean let me think about that i mean i've definitely met a lot of people who dress up and who are um yeah i mean i met, I met a lot of definitely a lot of lowercase d dandies um there's a lot of uh like there's a big burlesque scene here and there's a lot of like people who are into vintage here, uh, so you do. So I do see people who like like to dress. 
Uh, it's also a majority black city and black men in the South dress up a lot. Um, so you do see that too. Um, New Orleans has a tradition of people dressing. Um, on Easter here, uh, everyone wears seersucker. Uh, on, uh, there's a day in the summer called White Linen Day where everyone just walks around wearing white linen. Uh, and these are like citywide events, you know. And then, of course, there's Mardi Gras. So one of the things that New Orleans has that's wonderful is it has a, uh, a um, culture of costuming where there are so many events where people dress up in costumes. Uh, so people here have like costume closets. So it's not really to see people dressed up for all kinds of reasons. Now, I would assume it would be an easier city to to be a custom clothier in New Orleans because people dress up actually. Oh yeah, I mean, compared to compared to Baltimore, I mean nobody in Baltimore dressed up. Like you know, I they if you weren't wearing an Orioles jersey, they were like what well, you know, they thought you were running for president or something. <laughs> um, here, here I get. I mean a lot of. I mean, obviously, the, the virus had thrown all this into, you know, who knows when people are going to be buying custom suits again. But um, uh, there's been a, a lot of a lot of women here want custom suits. Um, I think people want a lot of colorful suits. Uh, people love seersucker here. I mean, I wear, I have four or five seersucker suits. Um, and some of which are Huddersfield seersucker. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> um, and I wear them a lot, and they probably—they're probably what gets me the most uh, interest from people. Um, that's what they want. You know. They like linen. People like linen too, but obviously linen—you know—you have to be going for that rumply kind of look. Yeah. Whereas your suckers yeah. being nice and pressed, even in the worst humidity. Now, being someone who's lived in New York, Manhattan. You know, sort of like you think of the power suit there and the way like brokers dress, bankers dress, and who's studied at length, who's committed their academic and professional career to dandyism with a capital D and a lowercase. Mm-hmm. Where is the line that separates that sort of uh, like Wall Street power suit from dandyism? Is, is there a hard separation there or are some of those oh. bankers dandies? Well, it's interesting because you sort of, you think about like bankers in the '80s during like the height of the sort of uh, you know Wolf of Wall Street and kind of yeah. that that kind of era with with the, the white collars and the suspenders and the wide ties and like the chalk stripe suits and so there was a while there where bankers were like dressing kind of flamboyant, um, but now uh, I mean definitely in in london in the city you see like the the thing that the english bankers like to do is they like to wear like crazy socks right that's them being like look at how wacky i am i've got crazy socks on <laughs> and they, they tend to have nice cut suits and you know nice fine shirts from thomas pink or whatever um but bankers i mean they, i've met a lot of bankers uh who take pride in what they wear and who mm. do enjoy buying things but they're not trying to really express anything about themselves other than uh, that they're neat and professional looking. Um, I feel like I meet a lot more lawyers who put sort of flair into their clothes because they kind of can. I think of, uh, um, one of the things I, I went to Oklahoma city a couple of years ago and it was funny because I met a bunch of guys there who were like, they were total Wall Street bankers. They were absolutely they were, they looked exactly like Wall Street bankers, except they were oil and gas brokers, and so they had giant belt buckles. 
But other than that, they were dressed exactly like everyone on Wall Street. And I thought that giant was kind of belt cool. buckles on the suit. Giant belt, yeah, giant belt buckles on the suit. They weren't even wearing cowboy boots, but they would just have like they were wearing like you know Gucci loafers and stuff. But they had giant giant belt buckles, and I was like, I like that. There's a kind of regional flair, yeah. you know, yeah, um, that says like, oh yeah, I'm an oil and gas man. I'm not, you know, I'm not uh, a futures trader or something. <laughs> So, yeah, when I remember also when I went to, I wish more people saw the difference between uh, suits. Because I think for a lot of people, like when I went to, uh, when Occupy Wall Street was happening, um, I was working around there at, a, at Paul Smith at, the, at, the, at their shop down there. And I went on one of my lunch breaks. I walked over to the park to see, to sort of see for myself what, what's Occupy Wall Street like. And uh, I'm you know, quite sympathetic to a lot of the grievances that those people have. I've got tons of student debt and, you know, all sorts of things. And, uh, but they, they thought I was a banker or something. And like, I was wearing, you know, I was dressed in Paul Smith. So I was wearing like a flowery shirt and like a polka dot tie. And they were like, Mm. looking at me like, Oh, there's there, here comes the man. And I was like, really? Like I'm wearing wearing red shoes. Like I'm, (laughs) you actually have red shoes. Yeah, Burgundy. Burgundy. <laughs> Ignatius is uh, known for his red socks, right? Ignatius is known for his red socks. Yes. Yeah. And red shoes. Yeah. I have I have two pairs of red shoes and two pairs of red boots and three pairs of purple shoes. Um, I like. I like. That could have gotten you a Rolex. Huh? <laughs> that could have gotten you a Rolex. I have everything but a watch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because cowboy boots can be expensive as hell, right? Like, how, how much does a, a decent cowboy boots uh, cost? Um, I mean, you can get perfectly fine cowboy boots for three hundred bucks, something like that. But like, uh, you know, Lucchese boots, which are considered like the, the finest non-custom cowboy boots, those those start at like six hundred, um, you know, and go up from there. It also depends on like exotic leathers. So I kind of, I also, I don't wear cowboy boots that often, so I don't really always buy the most. I, I don't buy the most expensive ones, you know, but I buy like sort of cool looking ones. Um, and there's, there's, this is a, this is a, a little cowboy boot secret for all of you people interested in, in buying bulk cowboy boots out there. If you go to Nashville, there's a bunch of places that sell you three pairs for the price of one. Now I was very skeptical. I thought, okay, these must be terrible cowboy boots. Yeah. I looked into it and they're all the same brand. Okay. They're not, and they're not a brand that you've ever heard of or you will ever see in any other store. So what I found out was the factory in Mexico that makes a lot of the other brands makes this one brand and sells it for really cheap in Nashville. So you can get the same quality boot just with a, like a off brand name. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I got like a Python skin. I got an ostrich leg. I got a lizard and you know, it cost me like, I don't know, 500 bucks for three pairs of boots. Mm-hmm. So that was like I really want to rock them, man. I just want to uh, like in Bangkok. How do you wear a cowboy boots? Like, how, what's uh, you, I mean? You, know, you need to get some bootcut pants. You need to get like jeans that are wide enough that you can put it over them. And then when you sit down, you know, it shows off the upper of the boot. My favorite cowboy boots are I bought. I was in I was in the Bahamas. I was in Nassau. I was actually I was on a job for Jane User, um, and I was down there uh, and. We, Jake had very generously given me and, and Jonas, his other employee, 
some some company money to gamble with uh, the casino. And so I was, we uh, we had lost everything but like fifty dollars. And uh, and I was like, all right. And you know, we've been betting on roulette or something. You're terrible at gambling. And I said, oh well, you know. And I had this suit on actually. So maybe this is my good luck. I had this suit on. And I was like, you know, oh, this is recent. It's like I'm going to play baccarat like James Bond. Okay. Uh, I went and I sat down and I and I ended up like getting back like three times the money I originally had. Wow! So I immediately went and ordered I, like right there at the table. I went online and I ordered uh, a pair of white ostrich skin cowboy boots, which are my one of my. I mean, other than this ring, they're my other prized possession. Nice white ostrich skin cowboy boots. Yeah, they look, they look really white corduroy. Gambling story I've ever heard, and uh, that's a very good. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a good place to sort of uh, wrap it up here now. Like higher crescendo than a white ostrich skin. Yeah, I have to go get on a cruise ship in a minute. So uh... okay, <laughs> <laughs> Natty, we appreciate you taking the time. Um, we appreciate you talking to us. You know, best Thank of you luck so for your wife. Um, uh, we appreciate her service as a nurse. Thanks. I, I thanks so much for having me on, guys. This has been a, a real blast. I hope that your viewers slash listeners enjoy it. So the, the book is I Am Dandy. You have another one called We Are Dandy, correct? Yeah. Uh, I Am Dandy. We'll have link. And then I've got a, uh, just I'll, I'll plug what I've got coming up next. I've got a children's book about trains that's going to come out later this year. Nice. Uh, Rose and I are working on another book this time about women's fashion. And wow. then I'm writing for Penguin, A History of Champagne in America. So I'm keeping busy. We'll have links to the two dandy books down below and to any of your social and to your website. Excellent. Thank you so much, guys. Thank this you, guys. Have a great day. Night-night.